I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Christina Biad, Outreach Manager for Foreign Policy for America, where she works on a number of different projects, including the NextGen Initiative. Prior to joining FP4A, Christina worked as the Program Specialist for the Bridging the Gap Project, supporting international relations scholars in developing policy-relevant academic research on international politics. Christina, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great, so Christina, how did you first become interested in working in foreign policy? I really kind of grew up thinking about everything kind of through a global lens. So I can't pinpoint the moment that I decided to make foreign policy my job or my focus, but you know, as the child of immigrants, foreign policy is kind of just a part of our day to day. You're constantly thinking about things, not only in terms of how they affect you here in the US, but how do they affect your family back home? As a Moroccan American, I naturally had an interest in North Africa, the broader Middle East, but wasn't exactly sure what to do with that. Found myself working on gender based violence issues and left that space actually because my goal was to become an academic. And as, as Zoe mentioned, you know, I worked with Bridging the Gap. I was in grad school studying social movements in North Africa and was really actually ready to start my PhD before I stumbled upon foreign policy for America. And, you know, at the time I was concerned with the foreign policy decisions being made by the Trump administration, the threat that they posed on um, our tradition of internationalism, and was really excited about the way FP4A was building a home for people who felt the same. So I, I got to meet our executive director, Andrew Albertson, join the team a little over two years ago and, and haven't looked back since. Before we dive into your work at FP4A, on the North Africa stuff, what do you think is an issue or a trend in North Africa that you think people should be following if they're not as interested in the region as you are? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, right now, we see tensions kind of flaring up between Morocco and Algeria due to the situation in Western Sahara. For those who don't know, um, Western Sahara is recognized by the Moroccan government as a part of Morocco, but there is a really large independence movement in the Western Sahara that, you know, is fighting for independence from Morocco. And they have a lot of backing from Algeria. And there are a lot of young people as a part of this movement. It's called the Polisario Front, who, you know, are getting really sick of the Moroccan government's control of the Western Sahara. To backtrack a little bit on it, Folks might remember when President Trump was in office, he formally recognized the Western Sahara as a part of Morocco, which is actually not something that the United States government had ever done or I think really even planned to do because it's so contentious. And that's caused, you know, a lot of those flare-ups that we see. And not enough people are paying attention to the tensions that are rising between Morocco and Algeria. And just given how critical of an ally Morocco has been to the United States, you know, being so close to Europe, being a part of the African Union the Arab League being, you know, a close ally in the Middle East um, and amongst Arab countries to see this kind of instability that could potentially come of a conflict because of the Western Sahara is really troublesome for me. And I think you very rarely see it in the news. So I would definitely encourage folks to take a look at what's happening there. Out of curiosity, Christina, if you had pursued a PhD, what would have been your focus? Like I said, I was studying social movements specifically. So 
I probably would have wound up doing the PhD in political science, but had um, a really big focus on social movements, specifically looking at the way that religion or the role that religion plays in North African governments. Specifically, we have the tradition of Sufi Islam in Morocco, um, and that actually plays a really big role in Moroccan politics, the way that the monarchy governs the country. It's really interesting to see the way the the role that it plays in social and political movements in the country as well. So that was my focus. I know a lot of people, if PhD students are listening, are probably laughing because you go in with an idea and come out with something entirely different. But that was always something I was really interested in and wanted to begin studying. Shifting gears to your role at FP4A and FP4A's role in the space. Where does FP4A fall in the sort of landscape of different foreign policy, advocacy organizations, think tanks, NGOs, how would you describe the role they play in the space? Foreign policy for America, um, we're not a think tank. We're at our core a 501c4 advocacy organization. We're a member-driven organization. We're a home for people who want to defend diplomacy, stand up for principled American engagement in the world. And, you know, we work with our community to make their voices heard on these important issues. The advocacy work that we do is, is incredibly important. Our community is fighting for policies that keep us safe and out of conflict, promote prosperity for all Americans. So I can talk a little bit about how we kind of do that. You know, at the beginning of every new Congress, we work with a coalition of policy experts and advocacy leaders, people from think tanks, people from other advocacy organizations, former uh, national security officials and, and diplomats who are on our advisory board. We work together to develop a 20-point issue agenda, ranging from issues like climate change and global health to defense spending and use of military force. We cover a wide range of issues, and we use that agenda to develop a legislative scorecard, essentially our way of giving members a grade based on how well they align with our values. And the scorecard has become a really powerful tool for us to not only put pressure on members of Congress to vote in a way that aligns with our values, but also to incentivize members to lead on our issues and make foreign policy a priority on the Hill. The second big role that we play is in the political space. We aren't only pushing for policy changes, we're actively working with our community to elect the right leaders who champion our values and commit themselves to leading on our issues. You know, we're a community of people willing to roll up their sleeves, put in the work to elect the right candidates, knock doors, raise money, make phone calls, the majority of foreign policy of the foreign policy community has kind of stayed away from politics for a long time. But FP Frey has really built the foundation for them to engage in a way that, you know, makes them feel heard and, and in a way that they care about and become a really important constituency. How is organizing the community that FP Frey is based on different than maybe other advocacy organizations focused on domestic issues? The political organizing side doesn't look much different, right, in, in terms of actual tasks. We're still knocking doors, making phone calls, raising money. What's probably different in that space is kind of what we organize around and how we get people in a room. I think back kind of to some of the organizing we did for the Biden campaign. In 2020, we endorsed the Biden-Harris ticket, and we hosted a number of fundraisers for the campaign. And those were really substantive conversations in the form of fundraisers, right? We talked about revitalizing diplomacy, President Biden's plan to restore American global leadership, renew our commitment to democracy at home and abroad. It's not really what you think about when you hear a political fundraiser, right? These were more substantive conversations, but 
we raised nearly $2.5 million through those foreign policy themed events, which is great. Not just because that money went into electing President Biden, but because, you know, it shows that there's people kind of organizing around this topic. People care about renewing democracy at home and abroad. People care about revitalizing diplomacy and they're putting kind of their money where their mouth is, showing that that, that constituency is there. So the actual tasks aren't that different, but the way that we're doing it just looks a little bit different in practice. People often talk about foreign policy as being an area that is largely nonpartisan or bipartisan, where we can sort of meet in the middle, even if we disagree about a lot of different domestic issues. But it feels like in general, in the political sphere, we're seeing greater polarization and partisanship more generally. And that, you know, I gather also has has really spilled over into the foreign policy space as well. Curious to hear your thoughts on that and ways in which it makes your job either easier or harder when it comes to organizing the community. I think you're right on the partisanship aspect here. I tend to think that it's not that partisan politics has only recently found its way into the foreign policy space, but of course, you know, it's certainly widened in recent years and you can really see that playing out more and more. In terms of, you know, whether it makes my job easier or harder, I'd say it really depends. You know, if I'm being frank, it's sometimes easier to organize people when they're angry. So when you've got that partisan divide and you've got one party that feels like the party in power is doing the wrong thing, right? I think back to the Trump era when we were constantly responding to xenophobic rhetoric out of the administration, bad policy. You know, it was really easy to mobilize people. And people tend to get comfortable when their party is in power and they feel like things are, are going well. So in, in that sense, it sometimes helps, which I, I really don't want to say because the deepening divides between the two parties has a real detrimental impact on, on the way that we implement foreign policy. And that, you know, generally makes the role that we play at Foreign Policy for America more difficult because we're trying to, you know, sustain a diplomacy first foreign policy, a principled foreign policy that kind of a, a large constituency in the United States can buy into. And when we have, you know, bitter partisan fights uh, in the headlines every day, it's going to undermine the way that the world views America and our political system. If we can't keep it together ourselves, you know, what country is going to listen to us when we urge them to root out corruption or advise on how they should write their constitution. So thinking about the other side of the equation, when I'm out knocking doors for political candidates, I'm out there supposedly connecting with the voter on the issues that matter to them. And for me as a foreign policy person, trying to to work that in can be difficult. What do you think about bringing foreign policy to the forefront of the minds of voters and how important that is? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something, you know, we're thinking about all the time. I like to say that, you know, the key to kind of connecting with people who aren't in the foreign policy space is to take the time to figure out how foreign policy issues present themselves differently in these different communities or to these different individuals based on their circumstances or interests, right? And that requires a lot of time, a lot of patience. It requires you to be open-minded and willing to be a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and challenge, you know, the way that we think. I use this as an example, right? An accountant in Colorado probably doesn't wake up in the morning thinking about nuclear risk reduction like the three of us might. But maybe she is a bit concerned with climate change, at least enough to kind of follow some of the news around it, 
maybe it comes up in conversation with friends or colleagues. I can talk to her, you know, if I, if I recognize that she cares a little bit about the climate crisis, I can talk to her about climate diplomacy, why it's important for strong U.S. leadership, you know, like we saw out of President Biden at COP26. But I can also go a step further and use that interest she has in climate to maybe have a conversation about the adverse effects of nuclear weapons manufacturing on the environment, right? Then she might start to think about nuclear risk reduction a little bit more. It's not like earth shattering. It's not going to change her mind forever. She's not going to join our leadership circle at Foreign Policy for America and be an active part of the constituency, but she's going to think about those things now. And that's kind of how you get started in, in connecting these to the mind, in the minds of voters. And you know, I'm not naive to think that we're going to build broad consensus immediately around foreign policy issues, but it's a slow and steady race to kind of get there and plug it into people when we meet them where they're at. On a related note, a lot of the conversations about foreign policy and national security are very concentrated in Washington, D.C., and maybe to you know, a lesser extent, New York. How is FP4A thinking about both incorporating the views of and doing its work across broader constituencies and broader geographies than the main sort of foreign policy hubs in the United States? Yeah, this is really important for us. Um, you know, a core value for us at Foreign Policy for America is that foreign policy starts at home. And, you know, home is more than D.C. and New York and kind of the major cities that you talk about. It's Texas, it's Arizona, North Carolina. It's every single state in the union. And, you know, we can't do the work that we want to do if we're not engaging Americans across the country. So, you know, I won't sit here and say that we're fully there yet, but it is really a priority for us. and. Since I started at Foreign Policy for America a little over two years ago, we've really expanded my team on the outreach side. I have two wonderful new colleagues, Hannah Katz and Mary Angela Ricotta, and the two of them you know, work tirelessly to identify people across the country who we should have conversations with, get involved in our community. Our leadership now represents at least 22 states across the country. And with the addition of our next-gen initiative, I think we have general members in almost all 50 states. Last I checked, we were at um, about 48 plus DC. So, you know, we're continuing to try and reach out to these people, have conversations. And like I previously said, you know, meet them where they're at when we do, right? The conversation that I'm having with someone about foreign policy in Arizona doesn't look the same as the conversation we're having with someone in Georgia, right? Trying to understand how does it affect your state, your city, your community, and you personally. And here's, you know, what we can do about that. Here's ways that we can work together. And we're trying to, you know, understand the issues that they do care about on a day-to-day and how those are, in a way, foreign policy issues, like the story of the accountant and climate change in Colorado, right? How do we connect that to the broader picture? I know, at least from my time working in politics, I think listening is a really hard task. In your conversations with people outside of the D.C., New York, let's say East Coast policy bubble, where is something where you learned something new or changed your mind about an issue because of that conversation? I think I I recently had a conversation with someone who we were talking about climate and um, we were talking specifically about how to message on climate. What they told me was a lot of the messaging that they see on the climate crisis is a doomsday scenario, right? It's, there's no hope where we've destroyed the the planet and we can't move forward. 
unless we take action today. And for him, you know, what that meant was why would I join a group then where I need to take action and I need to do something if I'm being told constantly that, you know, the climate crisis is an immediate threat and there's really nothing we can do. And it it was interesting for me because I never thought about how that messaging could impact people's willingness to kind of get involved, right? When I hear there's a crisis, there's a doomsday scenario, I want to hop in, I want to do something about it, right? There's always a way to fix it, but not everyone across the country is thinking about that. And they're being bombarded with TV ads and social media ads about the planet burning. And it is, and it's really important, but how do we kind of shift that so that it still feels like there's space for you to take action with us. There's still, you know, space for us to work together. I was hesitant when he was talking about it in, in this way. And, you know, I think I still kind of am, right? I, I think there is some effectiveness behind the doomsday messaging there. But for me, it was interesting, you know, to to see that different perspective and to start thinking about how, you know, we can talk about it in a way that brings more people in and gets them excited. Christina, I've heard the term intermestic a couple of times and would love to better understand what that means. We use the word intermestic to describe issues that kind of cross cut the traditional boundaries of foreign and domestic policy. So think climate change, public health, immigration, democracy and human rights. These are issues that don't easily fit into one category. And Americans across the country don't really think about them as strictly foreign or domestic policy issues. At the same time, foreign policy and domestic policy experts are working on these issues in silos. We're really lucky at Foreign Policy for America to have the support of Carnegie Corporation of New York for a new project that explores these intermestic issues by engaging local stakeholders across the country as expert voices, You know, talking to them about how these issues impact their lives, the communities that they lead, And taking that information back to Washington with us, putting foreign and domestic policy experts in a room together with these local stakeholders and figuring out how we kind of work together in one kind of succinct way to address each of these issues. I personally think we have a lot to learn from local leaders and activists on these interdomestic issues and collaborating with people at the local level really allows us to kind of ground national policy and the actual lived experiences of people across the country. And I think federal policymakers, you know, from both the domestic and foreign policy space would be really wise to take the advice from local stakeholders. And, you know, they tend not to seek it out. So those perspectives are typically underrepresented in these discussions. So this project allows us to kind of go out there and put in the time and energy to get all those perspectives and package them in a way kind of Washington can understand and policymakers can um, use in, in their decision making. Can you give some examples of intermestic issues? Like it sounds like climate is definitely one, but what else falls in that category? Yeah. So one that I think we talk about a little bit less, but I find really interesting is the democracy and human rights aspect. And I've I've gotten to speak with a couple of these local stakeholders so far that we're engaging in the intermestic issue. And I had one woman who's a faith leader in uh, Dallas. She asked me, you know, I work on social justice reform and criminal justice reform. What role can I really play here? I'm not sure I see my value add. And I said, you have an incredible value add because we're talking about democracy and human rights and social justice reform and criminal justice reform are all a part of that, right? If we're not addressing those issues here at home, how can we adequately develop human rights and democracy policies abroad? 
And it was interesting for me that she kind of at first didn't see the connection, but as we talked more and more about it, she recognized the importance of being a part of that conversation and leading those conversations. So that's one that I think is really important and probably overlooked the most. Another interdomestic issue that we're going to be focusing on, and I think is also incredibly interesting, is immigration. And this one especially, you see probably the biggest divide between the foreign and domestic policy experts in this space. There are a lot of immigration experts who work on domestic policy and think about immigrant rights. They think about the visa process upon arrival. So you have you know, domestic policy experts thinking about post-arrival process and, and those, those types of issues. And then foreign policy experts in the immigration space thinking about you know, systemic issues that lead to migration or thinking about refugee policy and doing work in that space. And I think that there's a lot of value, those groups working together and you know, learning from each other. And that's something you know, we hope to do through that project. The Biden administration is really trying, at least in theory, to do this with their foreign policy for the middle class. Do you think that's been effective so far? What are you hoping to see in the future from this sort of schema of connecting foreign and domestic work? The administration has done a good job thus far with the foreign policy for a middle class approach. We saw a really great example of diplomacy in action to support the middle class recently at the the G20. I don't think it was really all over the headlines, but it was something I was really excited to see President Biden's leadership in developing this global minimum corporate tax agreement, which you know helps even the playing field by setting a minimum tax of 15% for large multinational corporations. So this effectively you know, stops other countries from slashing their corporate tax rates, which they do to attract multinational corporations to leave the United States. And instead, you know, has these corporations staying in the United States and working families can actually reap the benefits um, that come along with massive corporations actually paying their fair share and paying their taxes. And that's, you know, a really great example of this administration incorporating support for working families in the middle class into their day to day diplomacy and the work that they're doing on the international stage. The G20 makes up about 80 percent of the global economy and all of those countries have signed on to this agreement. That's a huge deal. And that's going to have a great impact on the middle class and working families. In general, I'm just really happy to see an administration that recognizes that policy should benefit average Americans. We're talking a lot about how do you get Americans to care about foreign policy? How do you engage them in foreign policy? Start to talk about foreign policy decisions as they relate to their economic futures, their livelihoods, and their day to day. That's exactly what the administration's doing with this foreign policy for middle class. And I, I, want to see that continue and, and people you know, to continue to engage and, and celebrate that. FP4A recently released a letter that was signed by hundreds of foreign policy leaders urging the swift confirmation of a number of different senior foreign policy leaders that have been stuck in the Senate for a long time now. Can you give us a little bit of background on that letter and why this issue is so critical? This was a really great and exciting effort for us. You know, we had nearly 350 former national security and foreign service officials sign on to that letter and urge the Senate to take action to confirm state and U.S. aid nominees. You know, specifically, we urge Senate leadership to, if we have to, keep the Senate in session over a few weekends in a row and make sure that we get these nominations confirmed. 
these vacancies put the United States at a strategic disadvantage and it sends the wrong message to the rest of the world. We talk about, you know, America's back, we're here to lead on the global stage, but how can we lead if all of these positions at State Department and USAID are vacant? We're supposed to host a democracy summit in December, and we still can't confirm an assistant secretary for democracy, human rights, and labor. These are exceptionally qualified nominees, and the only reason they're being blocked is because certain senators want to play politics with our national security. And I think, you know, seeing nearly 350 former well-respected national security and foreign service officials come together made a really big difference. And I think we'll see some movement from leadership on this soon. Hopefully, you know, by the time the podcast comes out, we'll see a few more nominees confirmed and and can celebrate that. Yeah, that issue has really made me question the value of having so many political appointees in our national security community, especially for ambassadors just because this has been a complete travesty. It's definitely put us at a strategic disadvantage. It prevents us from doing the blocking and tackling that we need to do to keep America safe and really to promote good stuff in the world. I'm glad that FP4A has stepped up on this issue. You know, this was a letter that was signed by a a great number of excellent people, and I urge people to go and read it. But are there other collective actions or tools that FP4A has used or that you've seen used that have been effective in shifting the conversation on foreign policy? The letter was a form of legislative advocacy that we do. um, and, And those are really effective. And there's a lot more that happens kind of behind the scenes when a letter like that comes out. Of course, you're pushing out the letter. It's in the media. We're getting it in front of Senate leadership. But you also want to rely on the signers now. And you want to ask them, these are really incredible people. Um, and we want to ask them to you know, use their contacts, use their skills to make a phone call, call Senate staff that you know, call senators that you know, use the power of kind of your expertise and your background to help us make a difference. And more broadly, that's been a really effective strategy for us at Foreign Policy for America, being able to work with a lot of former ambassadors, former national security officials who in some ways kind of saw firsthand what was broken and now want to work with us to fix it. And in other ways, you know, they have all of this experience and all of this respect. And when they're the ones going to the hill with us and they're the ones trying to take action and roll up their sleeves with us, it's really effective. So we call that kind of grass tops. At the same time, grassroots advocacy is still equally important in building these large coalitions of people who can take action and call their senators across the country is also really, really effective. So a combination of both of those is kind of what makes a a perfect advocacy organization. We've got the grass tops down at Foreign Policy for America and are really working on building out that grassroots program at some point too. You know, I'll also say on this note, one of the most effective tools that we have, in my opinion, at Foreign Policy for America is our political arm. Because it's one thing to be calling your senators and calling your policymakers and saying, we want you to do X, but What if we could actually put the right people there to begin with? And that's really important. And you see that, right? We saw the majority of FP4A endorsed candidates, our champions, Congressman Andy Kim, Congresswoman Abigail Spamberger, Alyssa Slotkin, Mikey Sherrill, they were all, you know, those leaders who stood out and voted in favor of impeaching Donald Trump, who took a big political risk because they had our community behind them. They had a foreign policy constituency supporting them advocating for them. 
and they continue to lead on our issues and continue to you know, put pressure on their colleagues to lead on those issues as well. And that becomes a really effective advocacy tool as well. In the last couple of years, we've seen young people, and I would say especially Gen Z, get really fired up about a number of different political issues. I would say definitely climate change, racial justice. I'm curious if you're if you feel like you're seeing some of that excitement and energy in the foreign policy space as well. And if not, what can we be doing to get younger people, younger voices activated in the space? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. You know, I was thinking before I hopped on the the podcast with you guys, I was checking in on the Sunrise Movement's hunger strike. I'm not sure if you guys were following it, but young people came to Washington, D.C. and participated in a hunger strike urging the administration and specifically trying to get Joe Manchin to stop blocking climate legislation. I thought that was incredible in so many ways. And it was really interesting to see people who are between the ages of 18 to 22 using entire weeks or weekends uh, to protest this and to take action. One thing that it makes me think about is that Back to that conversation I was saying I had with someone who's talking about doomsday scenario versus pulling back a little bit on each of these issues and trying to make it more approachable. The doomsday scenarios, I think, get people to do big protests like that, hunger strikes, get them to you know be out there day and night begging Joe Manchin to take action for their futures. And I'm not sure that any other issue other than climate has really sparked that for young people. At the same time, young people have gotten more and more active in foreign policy and their voices are incredibly important. You know, I talked about having this grass tops network and our work has you know, been focused on a lot of former ambassadors and senior national security officials, but we're doing more and more to engage younger people. And I think that's really important and they have a really important role to play. The problem that young people, I think, face in the foreign policy space is that they don't have the platform to come out and fight for these ideas. But here we are on one of those platforms, and that's incredibly important. So I really hope that senior foreign policy leaders who we know are listening right now um, and have listened to all of the thoughtful and incredible guests that you guys have brought on. You know, a lot of the folks who you guys have brought on are... um, members of our Next Gen Initiative at Foreign Policy for America, which is led by incredible volunteers, Alia Awadala and Itai Barsaid. And we work with young professionals to advance their ideas, facilitate mentorship, and provide skill building opportunities. You know, we work with them to engage in our advocacy and political action. There are a number of really great opportunities for Next Gen members to mentor up. And of course, incredible opportunities for us to elevate, you know, the work that they're doing in kind of a new, unique way. So having them come on this podcast, um, we also started a dedicated column with Inkstick Media titled We Didn't Start the Fire, where NextGen members can write really thoughtful and important pieces about big things happening in foreign policy. It's an incredible group with tons of incredible opportunities for growth and professional development. And I'm really excited to see it expand in 2022. We'll bring in a new cohort starting in the new year and applications for that are actually open now through December 3rd. So would definitely suggest folks check that out. And there will be some informational sessions throughout the next month 
that NextGen Leadership will host uh, for folks who are interested in applying. So of course, we'd suggest checking those out as well. And we'll put a link to the application to join NextGen in the show notes. With that, let's turn to our final segment of the episode where we each talk about something we've been following this week. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? So a trillion dollar infrastructure bill has been sent to President Biden's desk, which is a very big milestone in the president's domestic agenda. But of course, now the real work begins, which is going to be bringing into reality these new changes to our social safety net, to our climate approach, to public works and so forth. So it caught my attention when recently it was announced that the president plans to create a new position for a point person who's who's going to be in charge of infrastructure to, to make sure that the implementation is really successful. And this is important because all eyes are, are really going to be on the White House and on President Biden to see if he's really able to deliver meaningful progress to citizens and voters. So I'm eager to see who gets appointed to this new position uh, and where it goes from here. Great. This week, I wanted to do a lighter note than my typical. And so I wanted to talk about the start of college basketball season. My alma mater, George Mason University, is really poised to make strides in the Atlantic 10 Conference. We got a new head coach over the interim, Kim English, who is incredibly young, which makes me both very happy for us and also makes me reconsider my life choices. But in addition to the start of the season, you'll notice more commercials with college basketball players featured because they've finally gotten name, image, and likeness rights, allowing them to actually make money on their labor. While I continue to enjoy cheering on my Patriots, I'm very happy about the players getting NIL rights. These players still deserve more. Paying these workers for their labor is a good place to start. Christina, what are you following this week? You know, so just talking a little bit more about the situation in Morocco um, with the Western Sahara, first and foremost, you know, one of the big reasons that people don't talk about why Morocco claims that land as their own is that one of Morocco's largest exports is phosphates and all of the phosphates reserves are are in um, Western Sahara territory. So, you know, as, as tensions kind of start to grow between Morocco and Algeria, over you know the Western Sahara dispute, I think it's really important for Americans across the country to think about you know what does this mean for American human rights or or the way that we protect human rights human rights abroad. Morocco is a close ally of the United States and a strategic one, and unfortunately, the decision to recognize Western Sahara by the Trump administration has put the Biden administration in a tough spot where you can't really pull back on such a large kind of decision in diplomacy without sacrificing, you know, the way other countries will view your diplomatic decisions. But there is space for the administration and for Americans to kind of stand up for the rights of Sahrawis um, who, you know, are fighting for their own freedom and fighting for the end of an occupation that's the last colony in the continent of Africa and something that all Americans should think about if you care about human rights. With that, Thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is proudly produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and Christina at Christina Biad. 
If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's podcast is brought to you by Big Boats in the Desert. Whether you're posturing against the world's only superpower or training for a future war, we've got you covered. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. Thank you.